Hello and welcome to the State of Talk podcast, brought to you by the Publications Committee of the International Society for Conversation Analysis. My name is Saul Albert, I'm one of the hosts, and today's episode is going to reprise a recording that we made as part of the digital meeting on conversation analysis in October, November 2022. As part of that recording, you'll hear me introduce our speakers, so I will hand over to my past self now. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. I'll get started because it's now just gone, turned the hour. Welcome to this Life in CA State of Talk podcast session. And I would like to start by explaining to those of you for whom that might sound like a kind of word salad, what the State of Talk podcast is. Not everybody will necessarily be aware of it and, and to say something about the wonderful guests that we have joining us today. My name is Saul Albert, I'm a researcher at Loughborough University, and I'm one of the hosts of the State of Talk podcast, which is a podcast produced by the ISCA Publications Committee. And in fact, I would like to just begin this session by very quickly sharing a few of the very fine people who are involved in this Publications Committee, many of whom are also involved in DMCA. So thank you very much to the Publications Committee and specifically to the team who have helped to produce the State of Talk podcast over the last few years, Elliot Hoey, Holly Sansone, uh, Jack Joyce, Sam Sherm, and Yume Gan, who have all helped to make this podcast happen. And for those of you who've not seen it before, please feel free to go and look at the fantastic people who we have been lucky enough to record talking about their conversation analytic practices. So um, what I would like to do now is to introduce three fantastic speakers who we have in our panel for this Life in CA. This is a live recording of the podcast, which we will be uploading to the stream. And I'm very glad to be able to introduce first Elizabeth Cooper-Coolan, who I'll I'll, I'll give you the blurb for all of our wonderful guests, is a distinguished professor emerita at the University of Helsinki. And her work on affect, action formation, and the temporality of grammatical construction has been really foundational in developing interactional accounts of prosody and grammar within CA, and of course, the field of interactional linguistics itself. And I wanted to mention a latest publication for each of our guests. Um, uh, Betty has just published a chapter with one of her many illustrious collaborators, Sandy Thompson, who I believe is also here, on action ascription and deonticity in everyday advice giving sequences, and that's in Depperman and Hawes Cambridge Collection of Studies in Interactional Sociolinguistics. So go and get that. Bogdana Huma, our, another of our wonderful panelists, is an assistant professor in the Department of Language, Literature and Communication at the Freie Universität Amsterdam. And her research is at the cutting edge of discursive psychology, and she uses CA, ethnomethodology, and membership categorization analysis to respecify psychological topics and outcomes, including work on persuasion, resistance, and the phenomenon of mansplaining. And she also develops applied research and communications training. I'm very proud to be in Loughborough, which is one of your, one of your institutions, Bogdana. Bogdana holds two PhDs. One in sociology from the University of Bucharest and the other from Loughborough University in Social Psychology. And has recently published a brilliant methods chapter in the British Journal of Social Psychology with Jack Joyce entitled One Size Doesn't Fit All Lessons from Interaction Analysis on Tailoring Open Science Practice for Qualitative Research. I definitely recommend everybody go check that out. And finally, Chase Raymond, our third panellist, is an associate professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Colorado Boulder. He also has two PhDs. I think you're seeing a pattern here, how to, how to have a life in CA. That's right. Those of you interested in career-related questions. Another double PhD, one in Hispanic linguistics and one in sociology, both from UCLA. And his research truly spans CA's many subdisciplinary associations, cultural, sociological, and linguistic approaches to interaction, and has contributed to CA's core methodological, empirical, and theoretical approaches to everyday and institutional talk practical doings of identity and culture. And just one of his many publications includes a paper entitled Code Switching, Agency and the Answer Possibility Space of Spanish English 
English bilinguals, and that's in Bolden Heritage and Sojournan's forthcoming John Benjamin's collection on Polar Answers. So you'll have a reading list now of the latest paper of each of our three panellists. The way that this session is going to work is that I'm going to take some of the questions that you've been contributing to the Hoover platform, and we will I'll pose them to our three panellists who can then answer, in, talk to each other, interrupt each other as you see fit. And we will take additional questions if there are some during the session. So please do use the chat function if you would like to. But I would like to kick us off with the top rated question <laughs> on Hoover, for which 16 of you voted, which I believe comes from our conference chair, Uwe. How do you, do you or did you manage, experience or cope with the slowness of high quality EMCA research vis-a-vis -vis the need to produce outputs, publish or perish, in the early stages of your respective careers? What are useful strategies and what has worked or is working for you? And Betty, could I start with you? Yeah, so definitely. So the slowness of high quality research, it used to be much slower. It's now speeded up. Most journals will ask reviewers to submit their reviews within four weeks or, or six at the most. So it's it's gotten a little bit faster, but it's still slow. And I and I see this point. And I guess one thing that I did in the early stage of my career that was not wise was to tackle, decide that I wanted to write a monograph all by myself. And that was a mistake. I should have gotten a co-author for that monograph. This was an introduction to prosody. There was a need for, <clears throat> there was a need for it. And so I've, I felt that, you know, this would be something I could contribute to. But it took years and years and years to complete that manuscript on my own. Had I had a co-author at that point, it would have gone faster. So that would be something that I I would say might work well in especially in early stages it's not that we should only have authored publications we also need single authored publications but especially for large projects i would recommend co-authoring to speed up the process thank you very much betty chase i see you've unmuted yourself i'm going yes. to take that as go for it I have a, a one piece of advice that occurred to me about this that I think is maybe not what you would expect is to try to have multiple projects going on. And I don't mean that you need to be collecting data at 27 different places and being interested in all these different, you know, things that are vastly different, but you've, you're collecting all this doctor patient interaction, for instance, to me that the collecting of that data is not itself one project that is kind of groundwork for, you know, a lifetime's work of stuff that I'll be using those data for. And so that helps with this kind of slowness thing is because you have things kind of percolating along at different rates. And one of the things that you're doing with those data are going to take like 10 years to do. And that's life. But another thing that popped up in it when you know you're reading stuff because you're in this setting you know you're reading some things that are related to blah 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 you know, so, something pops up and you're like i have something to say about that i can i can crank something out about that that really speaks to you know what folks are interested in it wasn't the primary reason that i was going into this setting it wasn't the primary it's not my primary sort of big 10 10 year goal with these data but i have something that can speak to this discussion that's going on i'm going to you know work, you know, work on that for a little bit. So you kind of have some different levels of things kind of going along at the same time. And that helps me with the longer term things, because I would get kind of antsy if it's, and of course, you know, just career-wise, it's it's hard for us to do that. We can't go five years without, you know, output, for instance. And so it kind of helps you. You can work on that and have that kind of ever churning, but then have some other projects going along the way. Go ahead, Bogdana. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I should have gone first because already so much good advice has been provided and it's hard to to add to that. But I'll I'll try to to maybe say one more thing about collaborators that would have been my my go-to advice as well. Um, not only in terms of 
sharing the load for, for big projects, but also in terms of making the project more fun. Because of course, if you if your job is kind of teaching and research focused, the research sometimes needs a bit of a push and the collaborators are there to to kind of help with that and to um, keep you accountable maybe or take on the load when when you are getting a little bit slower. So yeah, co collaborators have for me been absolutely crucial to, to getting some research out while having a, a teaching mainly job where teaching seems to come first and, and takes up quite a bit of time. And then the other thing, and this is advice that I got from Marco Pino, so I cannot take credit for that, comes from, it, it, it's sort of about what Chase was saying with having projects at different stages, but even more than that, having one project that you mainly focus on, and that's the go-to project for you, the one that you need to move forward, and then having other projects that are at early stages or that are with your collaborators or that you just kind of attend to when when something becomes relevant but having just one main thing that you are focusing on and you feel that that one is moving and that you are progressing with it and that kind of motivates you to move forward thank you bogdana i guess i should have mentioned at the beginning of this that i would be skipping between the three more or less themes that emerged from your emerged they did emerge these themes from your questions career which we've just started with and then kind of interdisciplinarity or disciplinarity uh, and that's where we'll start next and Bogdana if you wouldn't mind going first this time what are your tips for presenting EMCA research to a broader audience and what can be done to simplify analysis and transcripts without sacrificing rigor yeah so I'll start with the second question about the transcripts if you're so so my take on this and there might be other options other opinions as well just include as much detail as necessary for the audience and the purpose of your presentation because otherwise you are yeah it's just doing yourself a disservice to to add more details that your audience will just be puzzled about and that you will actually not get to use and in terms of interdisciplinarity, I found it very useful to present the same paper or the same study to different audiences and to always have a different take on the presentation because there are kind of different goals that you want to, to pursue. For example, when I'm presenting to psychologists, I'm more interested in, in kind of building bridges between the, the phenomenon that I'm kind of specifying and what we already know theoretically about it. And they will be super interested in how I collected the data and what I did with it and how conversation analysis works. When I'm presenting to conversation analysts, they already know many of those things. They would be super interested in some aspects like how much data or how I went about to build the collection, but I would spend much more time on the, on the analysis. So they're essentially different presentations or, or different objects that I would end up with. Uh, Betty, would you like to go next? Sure, yes. I, I can follow up on that and say something about the transcripts. I also think you only put into the transcript the detail that your that will be relevant for your analysis and that will will be appreciated by your by your audience. And especially with the Jeffersonian transcripts, I am very much in favor of standardizing spelling. I think that makes the transcripts more accessible. I think they can I think it's also legitimate for certain purposes to quote unquote, simplify the transcript. For instance, if there's a floor split, I could imagine only showing one of the strands of conversation. So that so you, you do need to ad adapt your transcripts to your audience. In terms of the analysis, I think here too, perhaps, depending on the audience, we as CA practitioners, are used to doing a line-by-line -line analysis, but we may not always need a line-by-line -line analysis for every audience or for every argumentation. And so here too, I think without doing an injustice to the analysis, it doesn't all have to be spelled out in detail for every presentation. 
Yeah, uh, the only thing that I'll add on, on the point about presenting to different audiences is really, I think it's important to take into account what that audience cares about the most, why it is that you're talking to them in the first place. If you're presenting to a bunch of medical doctors about question design, this gets to the transcript point. I mean, the creaky voice in that one syllable and that unreleased T and that all those delicious things that we love, the doctors don't care. That's and but moreover, it, I wouldn't say that it's that they don't care. It's that that's not what they're there for. That's not what the presentation is about. The presentation, for example, is about how to get your patients to give you more information about their stuff. So the creaky voice, while we love it and while it is indeed part of the data, that's not what's relevant for the purposes there. And it risks miss it risks having folks see pound signs in the middle of the transcript and their eyes glaze over and, and you risk losing more than you gain by faithfully representing the data or more faithfully representing the data now when i publish that same extract in roll c i put those pound signs right back in because that's a different outlet that's a different audience that's for a different purpose etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is although that although this sounds crazy this could sound crazy. This is recipient design. Recipient we do this design. all the time. All this is, is recipient design that you are packaging your content for the audience that you're giving it to. So that goes for your presentations and also for your, your papers, the, the written up versions of things. Yes. Great. Thank you, Chase. And I should have mentioned that this question was from Yulia Augustis. So thank you, Yulia. Okay. Skipping back to our focus on career, career development, which I know is of interest to many here. We have a question from Virginia Calabria, which is on life beyond CA, I suppose, or at least beyond academia, which is, I would like to continue, sorry, it's not beyond CA. Let me just read the question. I would like to continue doing conversation analytic and interactional linguistic research, but not necessarily or exclusively inside academia. How do you see alternative professional prospects for ECRs, for early career researchers? I'll go first so that the one thing I have to say doesn't get stolen, uh, <laughs> which I only know about this from an, an immediately past PhD student of mine, Olivia Hershey Marisi, who's been, who's gone and done some industry work. And so I would, the recommendation that I have is to look, um, linguists especially, to be looking on like the linguist list and those places where, where jobs are advertised, be, because it's not just academic jobs that are there, it's Google and it's things like that. There's a lot of speech recognition stuff, computers and human computer sorts of, of, of conversation. Just think all of the things that involve language, like your search bar on Google and all of that stuff. We're involved in that in one way or another. And so that it's just to say that we have kind of a tool set that that industry gets interested in. And so you can be on the lookout for those sorts of jobs. There's a, there are a lot of them and, and, and increasingly so. Everything, SoundHound was another one that Olivia worked at, which was like a, you know, a sound place. It's just all sorts of things that you think people talking, um, People talk in a lot of places. And so places that are, or folks that are interested in mapping some of that talking stuff, especially a lot of the human computer interaction stuff is a spot for us. I might pick up from there and say, that's the technological aspect. I know people who have gone from CA into coaching, into consulting for companies into, and of course, also into public services, translating, interpreting, that type of thing. I should say, however, that aside from the technological uh, 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 aspects, which are probably quite, there are probably many of them at the, available at the moment, these others, I'm afraid the, fina the financial situation is such that budgets are stretched, and I'm not sure that companies can afford to hire consultants or even public services can afford to have trained interpreters working full-time for them. So I, I see that as a, as, as, a, as a problem. I'll add a, maybe one more thing. If your project is an applied CA project, then it might be just worth thinking about the, the kind of private or public institutions that you're already collaborating or that you could be collaborating with. So healthcare interactions, there are 
lots of pub public health care organizations that might be looking for sort of research specialists, other settings. I can think of one of the colleagues that was in Loughborough during my PhD, Louise White. She was working with police interrogations, so kind of police encounters. And she went on to work for the police after her PhD. So kind of going in the area towards towards the area where you're familiar with the, the setting you're already studied in your PhD. And then another idea, just really quickly, there are already a lot of established CA scholars who have links to industry. So they are already collaborating with mainly private organizations and doing a lot of great work, training, coaching, and so on. So they might be people you want to reach out with, reach out to, and ask whether they could put you in touch with individuals in those organizations looking for um, in-house expertise in CA. If I could pick up just on what Bogdana just said about the, you know, if the only job you're not going, you're surely not going to get is the one that you don't apply to. And what I'm, what I mean to say with this is that I think a lot of time, um, our expertise is not necessarily what they were looking for, because they didn't necessarily know that that was an expertise that one could have. And so then when we present ourselves and kind of show what we could bring to the table, that that oftentimes can can do something for you. So that's just to to say, think broadly, cast a wide net, as it were. I mean, you know, you're not applying for that like cell biologist position or whatever. But I mean, like, you know, you, you think that it's like, hey, you know, people are interacting in this setting. Interaction is a, is a primary thing that makes this place tick. I could probably say something about what's going on there. You know what I mean? And that's not something that I think every, every employer is aware of, that there are folks that can do that sort of thing. So that's a muscle that you might flex a little bit when you're when you're thinking about how you might fit into different, different places. Great. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to throw in my tuppence, but I do have one, mostly because, in fact, Chase's advisee, Olivia, emailed me this summer when I was working with somebody who works in conversation design at Google and asked me for an intro, which I thought, oh, this is a very business-like piece of communication. And it's not always what we're used to doing in scholarship is on spec, you know, requests for contacts and applications. But I think that worked very well and I did pass it on and I, I hope it's been fruitful for her. But uh, yeah, I do have another few questions here. I'm going to switch back to our focus on disciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, this question from Eniola, who is here. I hope you don't mind me ventriloquizing your question, Eniola, but I think that's probably... So, okay. Okay. <laughs> Some scholars on the African continent believe that a purely CA account of interactional actions limits our understanding of the intersection of culture and African languages and social interactions emanating from Africa. What is your reaction to this position? Well, I, I can perhaps start and, and, and say that I, I do think that there's clearly room in CA, EMCA for, for culture, especially if participants have made it relevant in the interaction. But there are also neighboring disciplines that look at, at things like code switching, code mixing, at lingualism in interaction. And these neighboring disciplines, you know, I don't think that we should, you know, have any reservations about looking over our shoulder and um, seeing what we can learn from them. So that would that would be my my recommendation. I do think, especially in the African context, it's going to be multilingualism that is going to be extremely relevant. And that would be where we don't have to stick to pure CA, but neighboring disciplines will have something to contribute. Um, for me, I think this, I love the specification to the African continent in this question because we don't have a lot of work in the MCA on the African continent. So that's, so I like the specification there. But at the same time, this is a bigger, the bigger question of CA, this kind of constant, how, how much are you taking culture into account? Are you taking culture into account? How? And, and so I think for me, this is, this is, is always an empirical question in the sense of the African context. I would love to see us be 
concretely looking at some of the problems. Let's look at some data and see, because what, what, what I, I, I'm, I'm already starting to see us talk about pure CA and then something else. So already I'm not really quite sure what we're talking about. So for me, it comes down to let's look at some data and let's look at the concrete analytic problems that we're trying to overcome. I don't care what label you wanna put on it, whatever, we're trying to get something out of some data. We're trying to make the data tell us something. And so let's work through that and see what obstacles do we come up against? What things do we then need to do to overcome those obstacles? But I think for me talking about it that's that's why I think it's often so hard to talk about because we talk about it up here with CA and culture. And I think that's just so hard because, I mean, I think all of us would agree that we're doing the culture in every turn at talk. And about, so, I mean, disentangling them becomes really difficult. And so all this is to say, let's grab the data and let's start looking at it. Let's start like the multilingualism that Betty was mentioning. There's some work by Baranga, I think is the last name, where this multilingualism thing is exactly what the issue is, where he talks about, you know, we've coded them with different languages in here, but do the participants care about it that way. But that's what I mean. Bring a piece of data. Let's talk about it and really see what some of these issues are so that we can move past them as opposed to just saying, kind of throwing our hands up and saying, well, there's nothing to be done and moving on. Thank you. Bogdana? Yeah, the only one other thing I, I just probably not even add, but just stress is that we do see culture in action when we apply conversation analysis. So yeah, seeing CA is kind of limiting our scope to study culture. Yeah, I, I wouldn't see it as limiting. I see it more as kind of turning it around and looking for culture where people do it rather than as something abstract and pre in sort of in terms of pre-established categories. Great, thank you. And there's, and there's a plug in the chat. I yeah, I was just about to read it out. So yes, no, Uva just put in the chat. Thank you very much that there is a panel. We should advertise the Cox panel with colleagues on interactional research in African settings. It's right after this plenary speech. Thank you, Pregia. And, and I encourage everybody who wants to explore this further to join that panel. Great. Okay. So I have another sort of disciplinary Oh, well, no, and we're going to snap back to career questions. I think some of these are kind of multiply relevant to careers and disciplinary issues. We have a question from Andrea Brun. The amount of EMCA positions are limited, and there are lots of candidates for them. How would the panel recommend we get that EMCA position without necessarily applying for your own grant or fellowship? Do you have any advice? And would it be terrible to do something else for a while or explore other methods? <laughs> I, I can go first, but I'm going to do the naughty thing where I'm going to answer my own question rather than the question as you posed it. Merely just to say that I don't recommend just looking for EMCA positions. I think that's, that's to me, the core thing. Because you're right, there are very few EMCA IL positions. I, I, the position that I have, my professorship is not an EMCA position. I was hired as a specialist in Spanish in the United States. That's what it was advertised for. The other candidates, one was a sociolinguist, for instance, looking at Spanish in Florida. Nobody else was doing interaction stuff. So they weren't looking for an interaction person, but guess what they got? Ha! And so I, I think that that's an important, a really important thing for you to keep in mind. What are you studying? Are you studying interactions at a women's health clinic? You should be looking at jobs and gender studies. You should be looking at jobs in healthcare. You should be, and again, those jobs aren't going to be necessarily in, you know, interaction pitched things, but they're qualitative methods, maybe, maybe they're quantitative methods because you happen to be coding stuff, maybe. They, but so, so my advice really for this is because there are very few EMCA positions to be actually looking outside of EMCA to our enabling disciplines socio, for linguists, sociolinguistics, linguistic anthropology, and the different things that we inter intersect with. So like gender studies or medical, different medical fields, race, ethnicity, these sorts of things, wherever you're kind of pitching your research to be looking because again it's just like with the jobs they're not necessarily looking for somebody that does what we do but then they're like wow 
Lace and interaction, huh? That's not what we were really thinking of, but this is a really cool project that this person has. You know, let's give them an interview. So I'm sorry to, to not answer the exact question, but I think that's just really crucial to be looking, really casting a wide net outside of, of EMCAIL specific positions. Yes, I can add to that and say it was the same with me. I was not hired to do CA. I was hired to teach English linguistics. And I found myself having to teach English linguistics, which is the structure of the English language. And but at the same time, I, I knew that I wanted to 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 look at interaction. And so that's when I decided to think, how can I bring my interest in interaction into my job and decided maybe I could teach the students something about the structure of English using English conversation. So, uh, and that was how the whole, you know, the interactional linguistics. And the rest came. is history. <laughs> and so, you know, we need jobs. And so we, we take jobs that we think that we feel comfortable doing, but then we look for opportunities to bring in what we know about CA and interaction uh, in, and, and try to integrate the two. Yeah, it was sort of the same for me. Both jobs that I've had so far have not been mainly conversation analytic positions. One thing that I learned from that is that you do as much conversation analysis as there are people in your area that do that. So if you are, maybe you are in the very fortunate position to choose between two positions or more, and you want to go for the more conversation analytic one, it will probably be the one joining a department where there are other people doing the same thing so that you can collaborate with them. You can join their ongoing projects or they, they, they can join your projects. And then the other thing about sort of betraying CA and going for different methods, I don't see that as a bad thing necessarily, especially because CA does has become to open up to kind of, yeah, collaborations with other methodologies, quantitative, qualitative, and it's just good to know what, where we stand, what are our kind of compatible epistemological assumptions or where we kind of diverge. So actually being trained and knowing more about what's out there in terms of methodologies and approaches could be a plus for future CA projects and your own CA research. That's Fantastic. Sorry, Sorry, go on, Chase. I think it's important to remember that we are not in departments of conversation analysis no. or, or interaction linguistics or EMCA or whatever we would like. And so this goes to some of the other questions that I saw in here that I won't you know, get to, but I mean this the the situating yourself within you know your larger discipline and i think that's just an important thing to be keeping in mind for your teaching for your research for your conversations that you're having that if you view emca as this thing that's like othering of other things then that's the perspective that you're going to have and that's not going to be great and you're not going to be you know doing what Bogdana says and making those connections and talking to people and doing interdisciplinary work and that kind of stuff but you're probably not going to make many friends either and so you know viewing it as opportunities to contribute to the larger field I like to view it as you know the study of interaction is bigger than just me, or you know, the study of social social interaction or people being social is bigger than just the piece that I've broken off for it. You know, so I love to work with other folks that have kind of broken off different pieces, and that's that's also because we're you know we're in a larger kind of category together of you know social scientists. So the question was very I thought was was kind of framed as as it could be like almost being forced to do these sorts of things, but I think it would nice to think of them as opportunities. Folks, you know, put you into, get you thinking in different ways. They, you know, remind you of some questions from your discipline that you aren't always thinking of. And so, so just to piggyback off what Bogdan said. Great. Thank you all. And I'm just going to post in the chat more or less what I'm saying now, which is that there is a real cornucopia of experience in this in this call in the audience as well and without wanting to distract our panelists or detract from their voices if you did have 
answers to some of these more advice-seeking questions uh, that you'd like to share, please put them in the chat and I'll make sure that I send them out to everybody who's asked questions or just share them here. I think that would be great. But we are going to move on to another sort of disciplinary, I guess this is a field-specific question. And again, this was one of our highly voted questions on the Hoover platform from Semi Ekin. I hope you don't mind me ventriloquizing you as well here, Semi. But uh, where does the panel see EMC studies going in the next five to 10 years? What would be the new context, trends, research tendencies from your perspective? And of course, everybody has their own within these within these kinds of questions, but it would be great to see you putting on your... putting up your telescopes and seeing what are the big questions that we're going to be attacking over the next decade or so. It's a big question. Who would like to tackle it first? Nobody. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go on with a bit of wishful thinking rather than any previews of what will happen. I really hope that there will be more research on economic encounters or commercial encounters. I feel like there's huge scope for that because we all buy and sell things every day well not sell but definitely buy so there's just so much work that can be done in that area and it's probably maybe more difficult to get into that than other settings that do require let's say communication training like healthcare or kind of specialist linguistic insights like ai and so on but i feel like yeah that would be an area where ca could do very well Thank you, Bogdan. I should also say that this is one of the questions that I was not able to send. It came in kind of last minute. Not not that that's any criticism, but just I don't think people had time to prepare for it. And it's probably the question that would require the most preparation. So (laughs) well done for tackling that one, Bogdan. And would you Um, like to say anything? So um, I guess I guess I'm AI has just triggered that the thought that I think robots are the future. And I could imagine a tremendous solution that CA could make to robotics. Right. I'll I'll leave it there. This is a a research thing, but also a just kind of field development thing is that I'm hoping to see, and indeed we are seeing more data sharing. And so that's something that I think is going to be ever more, and I hope will be ever more prevalent in the next several years. One of the foundational features of CA as a discipline, which helped make it what it is, was Gail Jefferson transcribed so many of those classic data sets that you see, the Newport Beach and et cetera, and circulated them so that folks could use the transcripts and use the data. And you didn't have to believe me that I said this about this piece of data. You could see it for yourself, et cetera. And we know the effort, the time and the effort that goes into collecting data and transcribing it and all that kind of stuff. And that's an invaluable experience, but it takes time. And so the more it just adds, I think, so many possibilities for validity and also just for for bigger and badder projects if we have more data that we're that we're sharing. It's it's a difficult thing because of course data sensitive in various ways and context specific and stuff. And so we need to keep these things in mind. But you know that we're still cranking out publications from Newport Beach stuff. So imagine what can be done with getting these sorts of of corpora done. Great. Thank you for your extemporaneous responses to that big question. Thank you, Semi, for the for the question. Now I have a, a, a real career, a real life in CA type question from Elizabeth Apicella. If you could give your younger self as an early career researcher or as a postdoc a word of warning, advice <laughs> or encouragement, what would you say? Who'd like to take that on first? I'll start. I I I wouldn't issue a word of warning. I would issue a word of advice or encouragement and say, follow your interests. And this links up to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, I'm interested in EMCA, but where do I find a job? Yes, I think you 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 follow your your interests. And this by following what you're interested in, this will make your research enthusiastic it will it will you won't have any motivation problems and even if what your interests even if your interests happen to go in a direction where you lack the training i think this type of thing can be acquired in self study 
I would add that or at least what what helped me and what I would encourage other people to do is to to just find your tribe so the kind of people that you resonate with the kind of people that you like hanging out working with keeping in touch whether it's old PhD colleagues or current colleagues or friends or people you met at conferences or via Twitter we are quite quite a tight-knit community super friendly and helpful and that can help you get over good and bad well can help you celebrate good times but get over kind of lows in in one's career so those come they're kind of part of the job papers getting rejected funding applications not getting through but if you have people to to kind of share those moments with as well as when the papers get accepted then yeah that makes things it will make things much more fun for you I don't have anything to add. The, the collaboration is so important on that, on that, on that front. And on the other point about on Betty's first point about just, you know, to, to you know, just following your interests as it were with interaction, it, if folks are interacting there, there's going to be something for us to talk about. I, I've, I don't think that um, any advisor for those of you who are so would be like, no, there's, I'm sorry, there's 50 hours of data that you've recorded in this place. And there's absolutely nothing that anyone could ever say about it. We better just close up shop and go home. There, there's going to be stuff to talk about. And so if you're interested in a setting, if you're interested in what's going on there, then try to find a way to embrace that. Because as was said, that's going to keep your battery charged as you're working on the things, because it's a place that you're interested in. Great. Thank you for that one. Wonderful. So our next question, going back to disciplinary matters, this is a really, really big question again, but I, I hope you all have had an entire career in CA to prepare for answering it. And this is from Lira Ratayinan. So thank you for this question. I'd love to hear some thoughts on how you see the relationship today between EM and CA. When talking about EMCA, we see a lot of variation in the use, for example, ethnomethodology and conversation analysis, ethnomethodological con conversation analysis, and ethnomethodologically informed conversation analysis. What is EMCA? Is there more than one? <laughs> and we're not covering conversational analysis, I'm glad to see, but there we go. It's great you didn't start with this question because it could have taken us an entire session to answer it. I'll, there are multiple questions in, in this one, so I'll, I'll just, I'll choose to answer just the last one. I definitely see more than one CA, so I, I don't see a, a single pure or natural or, or adjective we want to call it. So there are different ways of doing CA, and I think that's absolutely great. The, the more diverse, the, the better. I would second that and say that I'm not sure that we need to draw disciplinary boundaries along these lines. And it seems to me that every individual practitioner is going to have their own priorities, their own way of approaching the matter. And I think we should be tolerant and respectful of, of the differences. They can only enrich our field. I totally agree. And I think moreover, when we are doing our research, this is not these are not lines in the sand that we should orient to in any way. So in the sense of like, I'm doing this CA project. And so I'm not going to look at, you know, this article that was called interactional linguistic, because it, that that is not going to produce fruitful results for you at all. So I like to just think about it again, that it's about analyzing the piece of, you know, the data, whatever it is that I'm working with, and it's trying to draw on whatever I can kind of put together to make that work the best. So that doesn't it, it, exactly, you know, that's kind of ancillary to the issue of what you're labeling it yourself, but at least from your drawing upon the research, you should be kind of taking the whole bag of tricks. Okay, well, that was, I'm amazed. I think I'd, I'd left 15 minutes for, for that question, <laughs> thinking that it may expand to fill the remaining time. Well done, everybody, for not allowing it to get out of control. I have a question which I often ask to our podcast guests that people seemed interested in on, on Hoover and voted for it. So I'm going to ask it. What is the one piece of advice about EMCA that you always give to your students? And it might be about doing analysis, We've already had some professional advice, perhaps it's another piece, but what's that one piece of advice that you always give? 
if you haven't already given it. Can we give two? Yes, go ahead, please. <laughs> well, one of my pieces of advice is always pay attention to how the talk sounds. So this is obviously one of my hobby horses. And so I'm telling my students, you know, pay attention. Is it loud? Is it soft? Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it on time? Is it delayed? And, and so forth. But aside from that, I think more importantly, I tell my students something that Manny Shagloff said that I've, I, I think really hit the nail on the head. He, he said that we must always keep in mind that things could have been different. We, we tend to see the transcript on the page and think this is the way it is, and it, it, it's inevitable that it comes off this way. But his point is and was, was and, and still is, that we, it could have, it, the, the, there's, there's contingency involved at every moment in time, and we have to, as analysts, be aware of that contingency. He, he said, good analysis retains a sense of the actual as an achievement. That was his, the way he put it. Wonderful. Thank you, Betty. Uh, that's two, two pieces of advice. Has she spoken on your behalves, Bogdana and Chase, or do you have any bits of advice to add? Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I have one. Just thinking back, it turns out that this is the advice that I end up giving to many of the PhD students that I'm involved with. Attend as many data sessions as you can. It's just so super useful training that you get with very little sort of effort that you have to put into because your PhD, it just it 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 basically requires you to have 50 hours in a day to do everything you want to do, and you don't have that. So there's always going to be things that you need to prioritize and things that you will have to um, put off for tomorrow, next week, or maybe never. But data sessions, it's just such an easy thing to do just show up it's your analysis it's it's kind of like going to the gym for your analytic skills you you just get to to kind of work them out and they're also a lot of fun i would add to also attend try to attend other talks as well in your department non emca stuff just because that also going with your kind of disciplinary the disciplinary stuff we were talking about before it keeps you understanding what are people talking about in in my field more broadly what stuff is going on what stuff is is being debated right now because again that's where you happen upon oh you're debating this big thing Guess who has an answer for that? We do. And you kind of slot yourself right in. See this thing you guys have been debating? Like, have you looked at interaction before? And, and you know, you, you have a different spin on it. And I know that that's like an old hat for us, but it's not for a lot of our colleagues who just aren't looking at the same data in the same way. And so it's just, they're asking different questions. So it's, this is again, that interdisciplinary thing that like, you don't know what can come from it. So it's, again, it's an hour of your time and you like got to eat lunch. There were probably free cookies there or something. And you got to see like what the computational linguists are debating. And it kind of gets your head thinking a little bit. So that's just a, a kind of a, a related point that I, just a little plug is that I am always constantly amazed by how often things intersect, how often that random point from that talk got me thinking about this point in this paper that I was writing. And I met with Saul to talk about, you know, working on this corpus. And he mentioned this paper that blah, 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 blah. And I thought, you know, that's totally relevant to this other thing. So don't, don't silo yourself either, you know, intellectually, methodologically with regards to your project, whatever. I mean, being thinking kind of in these diverse ways, I think is so helpful and, and produces this sort of unintentional moments of of knowledge that you, you you can't that you kind of stumble upon and I think it's really nice to have those opportunities for yourself wonderful okay so with five minutes remaining I think it's time to conclude with a deep question about theory because I'm sure that we only need five minutes to it might take me five minutes to read it but anyway Thank you very much, Yulia. This is Yulia Augustus. This is your second question. They've been very good. What do you think about 
work with theory in the field of EMCA. Several papers have recently been published on the relationship between EMCA and, for example, phenomenology and Wittgenstein. Is there still a place in academia for ethnometodological misreadings, as Garfinkel put it? And also, are there any platforms or journals that are specifically interested in this area of research? So five minutes, clearly a very generous amount of time to discuss this issue. Who would like to start? <laughs> it may, I may have ruined that one, by the way, that I asked it, but have a go, Chase. I, I will say that with regard to the first question, I think that there's, there's lots of questions in here, but the first question, what do you think about work with theory in the field of EMCA? I'm all for theory. I, in the sense that I think that, you know, our empirical stuff that we're working with, I like to, in the discussion section, conclusion section, I mean, what, what are we taking away from this? What are our bigger, what's the bigger kind of take-home message from the empirical bits that I've been talking about? So I think there's definitely a place for theory. And there's often, I think, a place to, with the sort of data that we look at, depending on the fields that we that we come from, there's often a, pl a place to kind of rethink theory a little bit, given that we're dealing with a different sort of data. So in linguistics, oftentimes it's that the theory comes from invented isolated sentences for instances that for instance that are you know made up and perfectly formed and all this kind of stuff and then as we know we get into real interaction and folks are doing all sorts of stuff so that says you know there's a theory about x y and z and then you say well when i try to map that on to to data we need to actually do some rethinking. And so that's oftentimes something that I think that we we find we kind of use our empirical findings to motivate a kind of a theoretical shift in thinking. So I definitely think there's a place for theory in it. Where I think that we don't like it is we we kind of like the just theorizing for the sake of theorizing, as it were, that's not in, that's not tied into what does it mean for these two folks to understand each other? How does it impact, you know, that sort of thing? But I think if you've got that, then theory is definitely in there. And we want to be contributing to theory. That's that's a critique of conversation analytic work is that it it's not theoretical and doesn't say anything beyond excerpt three, you know, that, that, you know, single case that I showed. And this is how we combat that is saying there is a theoretical takeaway from what I what I've said. So I think we, we should be embracing that for sure. I can second that. I, I don't have too much else to add. I think it's very important. As for platforms or journals, I, I would hope that they would be open to this type of, of publication, but I don't, don't know of any that, that specialize in the pure theoretical EMCA. Uva has kindly just put some in the chat, so thank ah, you. Bogdana, would you like to close us out? I'll try. So I, I also agree that CA and theory are not mutually exclusive by no means. And maybe we started out a while back with sort of just looking at the data, but now we have quite a large amount of coherent empirical observations that amount to some theories about how social interaction happens and the, the kind of structures that underpin it. And for some, that could be seen as, as kind of the theory of CA. For some, maybe not theory, still like a word we are supposed to leave out, but that could be one way to look at it. Fantastic. Well, I would just like to thank Betty, Bogdana and Chase for your wonderful contributions and to all the people who ask questions. I very much enjoyed asking them. And this will go up on the stream of the State of Talk podcast. If you don't subscribe to it yet, please do. And we look forward to seeing you. I look forward to seeing you in the next slate of wonderful panels on this conference. So thank you all very much for coming and see you soon. If you have ideas or want to participate in the ISCA newsletter or our podcasts and other projects, please go to conversationanalysis.org and reach out to us. We'd love your input in what we're building, which we hope is a truly international connection amongst our EM and CA communities. Our theme music is Ethnomethodology by Peter Daniel off of the album Convulsive Listening.